Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue in our series, The Unseen Hand of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 to 11, with a message entitled, When the Wheels Come Off. We've all heard illustrations of people who have lost their way. You know, you might think about a person who's hiking in a forest. That person gets off the path, can't find the path anymore, and consequently they're lost. You know, and even though they might want to be found, they just can't find their way back. You know, I've entitled this message, When the Wheels Come Off. And that's a common expression in our culture. You know, the images of driving a car, a truck, and then the wheels come off. The result, well, it's a crash, or at the very least, one can't possibly move forward. You know, both of those illustrations help us in today's passage. We've been studying the life of Joseph, and we've come to the point where Joseph's hateful brothers have sold him into slavery. So then life goes on, or does it? Well, yeah, it does, but it really doesn't go on in the same way as it did before. We've come to Genesis 38, 1 to 11, so let's read our text. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Cheziv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You know, at first glance, Genesis chapter 38 Seems out of place, or at the very least, we might ask, I mean, why is it there? Joseph has been sold into slavery, and if you glance past chapter 38 all the way to chapter 39, you're going to see that we get back to the story about Joseph now living as a slave in Egypt. At the very least, chapter 38 seems like an interruption into our narrative, and perhaps to put it more strongly, it's unclear how chapter 38 even fits into the storyline. So why is the chapter there? And why does Moses, who writes this account, think it's so important to tell us this story? Now, I think the answer to that question is really important. Indeed, the answer to that question should help us understand just how precarious, or at least from one perspective, just how precarious is the promise from God that he would bless the world through Abraham. Now, in order to figure out why this chapter is in our Bible, let's try to understand what's happening. Notice that our passage begins with the words, it happened at that time, meaning at the time when Joseph was sold into slavery, at the time when their father Jacob entered into deep mourning over what he thought was the death of his son. At that time, something else was going on, and that thing involves Judah. Judah was the fourth boy born to Jacob. 
His mother was Leah, Jacob's first wife, and also the unloved wife. And after that, nothing is said about him until we come to the account of Joseph being sold into slavery. And it was Judah's idea to sell his brother as a slave. But as we've noticed, his motivation for doing so is not stated. You see, it's possible that he simply wanted to save Joseph from being murdered by his other brothers. But as we've seen, Moses never tells us Judah's motivation. Now, after those events at that time, we read that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, that phrase seems to indicate that he's leaving the family. The sale of Joseph, the weeping of their father, the the hidden deceit, it's all taking a toll. The family is starting to break up, and, and Judah, it would seem, just wants out. So where does he go? Well, Moses doesn't say exactly, but he says that Judah turned aside to a certain Adulamite. There was an ancient city, Adulam. It's mentioned in Joshua 15.35 as one of the cities that was later inherited by, you know, interestingly enough, by the descendants of Judah. And 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 mentions that while David was living as a refugee and he was fleeing from King Saul, at one time he had lived in the cave of Adulam. You know, most likely, Adulam refers to a city which is about five kilometers southwest of Bethlehem. And so reading our account, Judah travels north about 21 kilometers from his father in Hebron and pitches his tent near a man named Hira. And by all indications, and we will read about that tomorrow, Judah and Hira seem to form a very close friendship. And it's there that Judah is attracted to a Canaanite woman whose father was named Shua. Now stop there and think about what that means. Do you remember Abraham's concern about these very matters? I'm now going all the way back to Genesis 24 verses 2 and 3, in which Abraham gives instructions to his servants regarding finding a wife for his son. Let me read that text. It says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. That was very important for Abraham. See, the Canaanites were notorious idolaters. And they were given to sexual promiscuity. And if Abraham were to have a godly line, a line that would fulfill the purposes of God for him and his family, the matter of marriage for the next generation, that was key. You know, it's like the passing off of a baton, the Abrahamic vision being given to the next generation. If the marriage of the next generation is to an enemy of God, well, the race is lost. The baton falls to the ground. Now, just so you see how important this matter is, go forward to Genesis 28, verse 1, and this time, it's Isaac looking for a wife for his son, Jacob. It says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Again, there's a a great deal of concern for the marriage of the next generation. You know, later on, Moses himself would give a law for all of Israel. He tells Israel that when they enter the promised land, that is, the land of Canaan, Here's what they must remember about the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7 verse 3 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. So this became a matter of great concern to the godly in Israel. Again, if we fast forward a long ways after the Babylonian captivity, 
Nehemiah 10 verse 30 records the commitment of the exiles who were then returning to the promised land. It says, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if you'll also allow me all the way to the New Testament, you see, it picks up that principle, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Marriage is so crucial. It often determines whether the faith is going to be handed down to the next generation or not. That's why Christians are forbidden from intermarrying with those who don't have faith in Christ as our Savior and our Lord. But in truth, Judah is done with that kind of language. I mean, he lives among brothers who will kill an entire village. He lives among brothers who will even kill one of their own brothers. He has a dad who no longer provides leadership, and he's simply lost in his weeping and loss. And the promises of God through Abraham, I mean, what does that mean to Judah? Judah is leaving the family behind, and at least so it might appear. He might even be leaving the faith behind. And Moses, who tells us of what happened, included Genesis 38 in our narrative to show us just how desperate things have become. See, at this juncture, as the family is coming apart, the wheels are falling off. The plan of God to bring about a blessing for the whole world through Abraham and his offspring, well, that now seems less like a promise from God and more like just a wild hope. What this family needs is a savior. But how can a savior come? I mean, where will a savior come from? Who is left who can be a savior to them? I mean, at this point, we simply don't know. But God is still God. And we do well here to stop and think about that. Can any of God's promises fail? No, no, they can't. In Luke 21, verse 33, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We do well to ask, is the promise of God dependent upon us making it come to pass, or is the promise of God dependent on God who made the promise? Which one is it? For if the promise depends on God, which it does, then let's be confident. God will accomplish all that he has promised. Tom said, what Dr. John says makes so much sense and he's opened my understanding of the Bible. Thanks, Tom. Your words of encouragement mean more to us than you might know. This October, we're giving thanks to our Savior for his provision and blessing in the lives of our listeners. There's so much being accomplished through Dr. John Newfeld and the Back to the Bible Canada team. And recently, a group of ministry partners graciously provided a cumulative ministry pledge gift of $50,000. Now listen, this gift has allowed us to participate in a donation match, where every dollar you give this month will be matched up to $50,000, allowing us to continue to change lives through the truth of God's Word. So to match your donation today, Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Judah has left the family, taken a pagan Canaanite wife, and by this time he has moved to a place called Cheziv, which was probably a little south of where he had originally moved to. You know, the bad news is that he's found a place to settle down for good. 
But the good news is he's just a little closer to where his father and brothers lived. Perhaps there is hope yet. Judah and his wife then go on to have three children. They're all boys, and it would seem Judah can't run away from God. We're reminded here of Paul's words in Romans 11:29 that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God is still calling Judah. And so tragedy strikes, and Moses doesn't tell us the details. I mean, all he relates to us is that Ur, who's the oldest boy in the family, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, that is, in the sight of the God of Abraham. And then God puts him to death. Now, how he died and under what conditions, well, we're simply not told. Guessing doesn't help us get closer to finding out what happened. But one commentator pointed out that in Genesis, we find that the people of Noah's time were wicked and God put them to death. And Sodom and Gomorrah are the only other example of that. We are then left to think that whatever it was that Ur did, his crimes against God are so great, as great as the people in the days of Noah and as great as the crimes of Sodom. Again, we're left to contemplate what has happened to Judah. Now, when this occurred, Ur, the son of Judah, was already married. And again, we're left to contemplate how much time has passed. Bruce Waltke tries to put together a chronology of the events at this time. And given that it was 20 years between the selling of Joseph into slavery and the reuniting of the family, Waltke thinks that Ur was here probably 18 years of age. And that's assuming that Judah was married immediately after Joseph was sold. And at the time, of course, there was no birth control. And the first child was born immediately. That seems exactly right. We discover that Ur's wife is a woman named Tamar, and Tamar will play significantly in this story. But at any rate, immediately after Ur's death, Judah becomes concerned. See, in the ancient world, the firstborn would inherit the leadership of the family, and once he died, that leadership would fall to the son. And in the ancient world, if a man died without having a son to pass on his inheritance, his brother would take the widow to be his wife and the children they had would be counted as belonging to the dead brother. And so even when the living brother would have other children, those children from the widow would be counted as part of a different family. I know that sounds strange to our ears, but but that's how land and inheritance was passed on in those days. It was traditionally done, and to fail in this duty was considered selfish and scandalous. You know, some of you might be thinking about the Old Testament book of Ruth right now. And you might remember that Ruth was a widow, and when Boaz marries her, the children they bear are counted as belonging to Ruth's dead husband. See, that drama is key to understanding that book. In ancient times, that was called a Leverite marriage. And you might also remember Ruth chapter 4, verse 6. You know, Ruth, in that passage, we learn that she must be married to the closest relative of her dead husband. But Boaz, in this marvelous love story, Well, Boaz wants to marry her, and he's related to her dead husband, but there is a relative who's closer than he. Sounds like Boaz might not marry Ruth after all. And so the the closer relative is given the first right to marry the widow. He's called a redeemer because he redeems the lost inheritance of the dead man. And Ruth 4 verse 6 says, Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. That is, if I marry Ruth, it creates a complication in my family, and I I just can't jeopardize that. So I hope you see that a Leverite marriage would give a widow the assurance that she's going to be cared for by her dead husband's inheritance, and even though that would create an inconvenience for the man that marries her. 
And so following that ancient custom, getting back to our story in Genesis, Tamar is given to Judah's second son, and his name is Onan. Judah has intervened, and he has told Onan of his duty. But Onan knows that if he has a baby with Tamar, then the inheritance of the firstborn will pass from him to his son. That is, if Tamar has no babies, Onan will inherit the lion's share of his father's wealth when his father dies. But if Tamar has a baby, then that baby, and not Onan, inherits most of Judah's wealth. And so Onan is not willing to give up on his chance to get rich. So he has relations with Tamar, but as our text says, he spills his seed on the ground. He's going to have sex with Tamar, but he won't make babies with Tamar. You know, I was a university student so many years ago now. I remember having a professor, and he used this text to argue that the Bible was opposed to birth control. I hope you can see this passage has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with birth control. At any rate, tragedy now strikes Judah's family for a second time. Onan is a wicked man, for he's quite content to abuse Tamar sexually and then to deprive her from being cared for as she becomes older. As far as Onan is concerned, Tamar is good for pleasure, but she can quickly be abandoned when the time is right. But God is not mocked, and now for a second time, God himself puts one of Judah's sons to death. Again, as before, we're not told how God did it, only from reading the text, we're very sure that Judah knows that it was God who killed two of his sons. Judah may have left the family of Abraham, but he can't flee from the God of Abraham. And so Judah's now left with only one son, and he's under no illusions. This youngest son is morally no different than his two brothers. And Judah can now see he's in big trouble. So what to do? Well, he doesn't want Shelah, his youngest son, to die like his brother. And so Judah tells Tamar to go back to her father's house. Go live with your mom and dad, he says. I'll call you when Shelah is old enough to get married. But of course, we already know that Judah has no intention of keeping his word. Tamar will never hear from Judah again. At least that's how Judah has it planned. So it's time now to step back for a moment and think about this man, Judah. What kind of a man is he? What's he like? And the reason this is an important question is because when we come to the end of Genesis, well, there we're clearly told that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the rightful king who will govern this entire earth, will be a direct descendant of, yeah, you guessed it, of all people, Judah. I know that sounds so unlikely, But if you think so, I think you don't know God. God calls things that are not as though they are. God is far from done with Judah. And yet at this juncture, who is Judah? We know that he's a selfish man. I mean, he left his family when things got tough. We know that. We also know that he was willing to abandon his daughter-in-law rather than to solve the problems of wickedness in his own household. And furthermore, even though we don't know his motives at the time, Judah is the one who conceived of the idea of selling his brother into slavery. You know, in short, at this juncture, I would describe Judah as an absolute failure. He's a failure as a man. He's a failure as a father. He's a failure as a protector of the vulnerable. He's a failure in his relationship with God. And he's immoral. He's a wretched sinner. All the wheels have fallen off of this man. Now, keep that in mind. And then, Listen to the words that Paul the Apostle would write the Corinthian Christians. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. (laughs) That's to say, the people who are forgiven and made holy, whose sins have been cleansed, those people were once the worst of sinners. John Newton, the famous author of the hymn Amazing Grace, knew that. He speaks of the grace that saved a wretch like me. Indeed, Newton had been a wretch, sure enough. Just like Judah, Newton was in the slave trade. But in time, God in grace would save such a wretch. And in time, in grace, God would save a wretch named Judah. All that's left now is to discover how God would do that. Hey, doesn't that give you hope? If you, my dear listener, are convinced that your sins are so great that no righteous God would ever be interested in you, if that's what you think, let me assure you of a glorious truth. God saves wretches. He's been saving wretches for thousands of years before you came along. And and since that's true, would it not be right to call on God and to plead for mercy in your case? You see, when the wheels fall off, God has not stopped saving. Indeed, until the wheels fall off, we're not even aware we need saving. Good news, God is a great God. John, does it seem at all peculiar to you that Jesus would come from the line of Judah considering their history? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's, um, the Bible has this, Ben, it has this marvelous ability to, to, you know, turn the floodlights on and then show us people for who they truly are with, you know, all their massive failures. And, uh, and out of this has come these wonderful promises of God. I mean, it's, it's not like some of the, the novels that a person can read and, you know, that the hero is just so good and always good. Um, you know, the, the heroes of the Bible are portrayed for who they really are. I mean, the only one that's good is Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that the line that brought us the, the Messiah— was a line of people who had to be redeemed from sin, that the one who had come uh, from their loins would be the one that would save them from their sins. It's quite a it's quite a thought, and it's really a beautiful thought. Thanks so much, John. And remember, join us tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience has become a staple of ministry over the last number of years. Friends from across Canada gather together to join Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and special musical guests for an incredible journey through the Holy Land. One friend after joining us in Israel shared, again, thank you for this wonderful trip. Like you said, the Bible has really taken on new life for us. This has been the experience of so many. Experience Israel for yourself under the teaching of Dr. Neufeld. Worship in the places where Jesus lived, walked, and taught, and you'll never read the Bible the same way again. 
Join all of us, Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the entire team in 2021 for Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience. For more information, visit backtothebibletours.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.